listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. We'll take your Bibles again and turn back to James chapter 1. And as you're orienting yourself there again, uh, you may not have noticed, but we've got some good friends back in church with us this morning. Some of you may have thought that they were first-time visitors because we haven't seen them all summer. And I'd like to say that indeed, finally, the Peterson family has returned. And can I just say, on behalf of the entire church, that we have missed you so much, Jen. kidding. We've all missed you, every one of you, including Brian. And uh, we've missed you a lot. And we've been praying for you guys over the course of this summer that God would bring renewal to your heart and that he would strengthen you and your family. And we're looking forward to the days ahead together again. Well, hopefully now you're in James chapter 1, and the primary focus of the sermon this morning will be looking at verses 19 through 25. But before we dig into the passage, I'd like to just briefly give you some key ideas when looking at this wonderful book, the book of James. First, the author of the book is the half-brother of Jesus. James, Jesus' half-brother, was converted after seeing his resurrected brother alive from the dead. James went on to be an influential leader in the church established in Jerusalem, and his instruction as you go through the book is very reminiscent of his older brother Jesus. So James is the author, but secondly, The book of James has often been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Proverbs are usually concise statements of wisdom on a particular topic, and the book of James is replete with these proverbial statements. And because of this book's nature, proverbial nature, we might be tempted to view James as simply a collection of standalone, wise sayings to live by, but that would not do justice to the fact that this book is actually a letter. It's an epistle. And the significance of this book being a letter means that James knows his audience, and he knows the circumstances and issues that they are facing, and James intends to address those issues. So we can't simply approach James as a collection of pithy statements. No, James has purpose in his organization of the letter. And this organization sheds light on how he's specifically applying his instruction. Third, we must recognize at the outset that James reflects a Jewish approach to instruction. It's written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. 
James himself is a faithful Jewish leader, the pastor in Jerusalem. So it reflects Jewish instruction. This book is extremely practical, meaning it applies to real life situations. For example, one of the major themes of James is the theme of godly wisdom. But while we might be tempted to think that wisdom dwells in the sphere of our mind and in how much we know, James is far more concerned about how a person lives. In James 3.13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct or his beautiful life? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So in other words, someone can be really smart or eloquent, but until they practice what they preach, they remain a fool. The instruction found in James, according to our good friend and resident rabbi, Randy Hecht, is aimed at the heart, not just at the head. So it's extremely practical. And having briefly oriented us now to this book and what it's like, I want to zoom in a little bit closer and examine some key concepts that James is developing in our text. The first concept is the life-giving, soul-saving, freedom-producing word of God. Look at the scripture. In verse 16, it says this. James is reminding us that we cannot accuse God for our sin. We can't blame God. And in verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then he goes on to say, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So after reminding us, That God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. James highlights one of God's greatest gifts. And that is the gift of new life. The phrase brought us forth in verse 18 is the idea of giving birth. So this good God graciously determined to birth us into new life in Christ. And how does he do it? He does it through the word of truth. This word of God is wonderful because it's a life-giving word. He then revisits the topic of the word in verse 21. Look at your Bibles. It says this. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So in verse 18, it's the life-giving word. And here in verse 21, it's the soul-saving word, which, by the way, was implanted in us at the moment we put our faith in Christ. Finally, the word shows up again 
in verse 25 where it is described as the perfect law, the law of liberty. So this word not only gives us life, it not only saves our souls, but it also frees us. It's the law of liberty. Those who obey God's laws are not under bondage. No, we are free. Free to love the Lord and one another as God commands. It's a liberating word. Scholars agree that this topic of the word of God binds all of verses 19 through the end of the chapter in a loose unity. So that's one concept James is developing, but there's another concept he's developing, and that is the concept of responding. Look at what he says in verse 19. In verse 19, we've got to be quick to hear and slow to speak, right? But hearing isn't enough, is it? No, in verse 22, James makes it abundantly clear. We must also do the word. In verse 21, we meekly receive it. In verse 22, we obey it completely. So these two ideas are developing throughout our text. The word of God and what it can do. And then number two, our response to what the word of God says. So combining these concepts together this morning, our goal for the remaining time will be to answer this question. Here's the question. How should we properly respond to the word of God? How should we properly respond to the word of God? And the first response is found in verses 19 and 20. And that is this. We must listen carefully and respond thoughtfully when the word of God is being taught. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this phrase, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, is a classic example of proverbial teaching in the book of James. It's a concise statement packed with wisdom, and frankly, it can stand on its own. But I want to make sure that everybody sees before we start talking about this text that this statement is bracketed by the life-giving and soul-saving Word of God. So we've got to understand what he's saying in light of that context. So we can apply this to a general conversation. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But really this morning we want to be asking the question, a a different question. How does this apply to the context of hearing and receiving the word? It's important to remember that in the early church, the primary form of communication was spoken instruction. 
These early Christians probably never heard their pastor say what I said at the beginning of our time together. Open your Bibles to the book of James. They didn't have the pervasiveness of Scripture. They didn't have it right in their hands. So what they relied on was they relied on the spoken transmission of the Word of God. And in addition to that, the early church gatherings were not structured like our gatherings are today. Our gatherings are usually have a little bit more of a formal set structure, right? We got a time for singing, we got a time for reading scripture, for praying and preaching, and a lot of forethought goes into what will be said before the gathering happens. But in the early church, things were much more fluid. In fact, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that their gatherings were perhaps a little too fluid, right? In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 and following, Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in his turn. And let someone interpret. And if there's no one to interpret, let them keep silent, right? Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what was said. For God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace. So Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order. So in, under, to, in order to, for us to understand how being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath applies to the hearing of the word, we've got to remember the early church was a lot different than ours. It was much more fluid, and they had to rely on the spoken transmission of the word. In fact, if we were to try to get a picture of what their gatherings might have looked at like, we might look at the structure of our growth groups or small groups, right? In a small group, the goal is interaction with the Word and discussion around the Word, and that can be really, really profitable and really, really helpful in helping us apply God's truth to our lives. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever been a part of a small group that got derailed. Maybe someone wasn't tracking and they kind of go off on this little rabbit trail and you're kind of like, what? You know? Or maybe they unintentionally say something that is actually wrong and not what the text is saying. Or perhaps you've actually witnessed one of those tense, eh, borderline arguments, right? in a small group setting when somebody starts arguing with another and the conversation starts getting a little bit tense and heated. And what starts as a discussion descends into an argument with people taking sides. And you know what happens when that happens? The word of God and its meaning gets swept to the side. Because we're so focused on arguing with one another. 
That's the reason why James in this context says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. But what does that look like? Well, first, we must listen carefully to the word. Whenever there's a breakdown in communication, it's probably because we've been lazy listeners. Paul Turnier, a renowned psychologist once said, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. The idiom dialogues of the deaf means that there's an abundance of speaking, an abundance of noise, and zero listening. Many times we pretend to be listening, right? When in reality, we're just waiting to do what? We're just waiting to speak. Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, If anyone answer, gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. His folly and shame. In verse 19, James tells us to refrain from jumping to conclusions before we have first carefully listened to gain understanding. And this exhortation is extremely needful because listening carefully is really hard to do, isn't it? For example, I have a really, really bad habit of zoning everything out when I'm trying to concentrate on something. And there have been times, maybe, maybe wives, you've experienced this too, where Amanda has been talking, and I'm in the zone, and I'm not really listening, and then she asks me a question, and it's like, oh boy, what did she say, right? <laughs> and I got that deer-in-the-headlights kind of a look, and because I haven't been listening carefully my responses as a husband sometimes are hurtful. Sometimes they lead to confusion. Sometimes they even lead to further arguing. That was the case of my... What was the case, though, of my failure to listen to my wife? The problem was that I was distracted with something else. Something else was dominating my mind. There was noise already in my soul. And it takes a great deal of diligence and perseverance and self-denial to truly listen well. Now, some of you wives are thinking, thank you. Maybe now my husband will listen to me. But remember, this statement is placed in the context of responding to the word. The life-giving word in verse 18 and the soul-saving word in verse 21. So it's not necessarily, although it could be applied to relationships in general because it's a proverb and it stands on its own, James is putting it in the context of responding to the word. So what about you? Are you a good listener when the word is being taught? Or are you a person who finds yourself regularly distracted? 
You know what I have found personally distracting to me? My phone. Some of us are poor listeners because we're so easily distracted by the buzz of a notification or a text from friends. And we're there on our phones, and though our phones aren't evil, they can be very helpful, right? We can launch the Bible app with just a simple click, and we can jump to whatever text is being read, but they're also a massive distraction. If you look around at society today, what is society doing? They're looking at their phones. And for some of us, do not disturb is probably a really good option when we come to approaching the Word, while others of us just simply might need to put this thing under our chair, grab a print edition of the Word, and just start using that. Whatever you decide, one thing must be clear, we must do whatever it takes to listen to the Word. Because we're easily distracted. That might mean we need to sit up front or take notes or stand in the back. Now, why would somebody do that? It's because the word is critical to our spiritual growth and people don't change apart from it. So James is telling us, listen carefully when the word of God is being spoken. Second, we must also respond thoughtfully Proverbs 10, verse 19 says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It goes on to say in verse 21, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Too often, we open our mouths before we have thoughtfully considered the full impact of God's word being spoken to us. We are quick to argue, quick to pass judgment, quick to jump to conclusions, and quick to defend ourselves. And in our path, we leave a wake of confusion and pain. And James says we need to be slow to speak, thoughtful in our Responses. So how does being slow to speak apply to the context of listening to the word? Well, first of all, if there ever is an opportunity to engage in dialogue in a teaching setting, make sure that you have first listened carefully. And then, if you must respond, make sure that you choose your words thoughtfully so as not to result in confusion or lead to an argument. Instead of an abrupt, accusatory response, perhaps a simple question would bring clarification. This application applies easily to our small groups, right? And we're going to start small groups here really soon. It applies easily to a group setting where there's interaction. But how could we apply this situation to the one we're in right now, right? Because I noticed not many of you are talking right now. Not many of you are verbally responding. You know, the best we pastors can get is the occasional, hmm, or perhaps the stray, amen, amen. 
The only responses that we receive are kind of those in that room. But how can we apply the command in our current situation and in our structure? Well, I think we can. And we've got to remember that the command is to first listen carefully, to respond thoughtfully, and to avoid arguing. So can you then rush to conclusion in your heart and start arguing with a teacher without verbalizing it? The answer is yes, right? Perhaps we are frustrated with what a teacher says or how the teacher came across, how they said it. It might have been true, but boy, that sounded too harsh, right? Or maybe we just don't like the teacher at all. And in our heart, we've slowly stopped listening and we've adopted an argumentative posture. I have a friend who, when she kind of got annoyed with a a speaker in chapel that maybe went too long or um, was saying something annoying or she just didn't like it, how they said it, my friend would uh, take her fingers like this, her thumb and, and pointer finger, and she would close one eye, and she would put the speaker in between her thumb and pointer, pointer finger, and then she would go like this. And sometimes we get that way, right? Particular teacher teaches something that we don't like, and all of a sudden, instead of like, Listening and adopting a posture of, a, okay, I'm trying to carefully listen, we start arguing in our hearts. Now, some of you might be nervous. You're getting really nervous. And you're, you're thinking, Mark, are you implying that the Bible tells you to unquestioningly obey whatever the teacher or preacher says? No, that's not what I'm implying, right? Teaching that is in line with Scripture ought to be received, And teaching that is out of line with Scripture should obviously be rejected. James isn't saying stop thinking or don't be discerning or don't ask questions when appropriate. He is, however, warning us from hastily jumping to conclusions and hasty speech in the context when the word is being spoken. So what is the posture of your heart? Is it one that wants to listen? Or is it one that runs to arguing? Before we move on to verse 21, I just want you to see what's at stake when we have lazy listening habits and hasty speech. If we're not careful, we end up arguing with one another which leads to anger. And James is very clear. The anger of man, verse 20, is unable to produce the righteousness that God requires. If we are arguing with one another, we can be certain the word of God and its meaning has taken a back seat. And so we must be careful how we respond in the context of receiving the word. Which brings us to verse 21 now and our next response to the word. The first one is we must listen carefully and respond thoughtfully when the word of God is being taught. But second, we must submissively receive the word. 
Verse 21 begins with the word, therefore. Do you see it? This simply means that whatever James is going to say next is connected to and flows from what he has already said in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So after exhorting us to listen carefully and respond thoughtfully in the context of hearing the word, James now commands us to submissively receive it. The Greek word dekomai, translated receive, is the primary verb in this sentence. It means to welcome or to accept as you would a dear friend into your home. The Apostle Paul wrote of this concept in Colossians 3.16 when he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Receiving the word means that we welcome it into our hearts. But how should we receive the word? What does it mean to welcome the word and to receive it? Well, first, we must receive the word by putting away two things. Filthiness and rampant wickedness. James uses these two words to describe the true nature of sin. He says sin is filthy and defiling. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Sin is filthy, sin is defiling, but it's also pervasive. That's the idea of this phrase, rampant wickedness. We're not just a little bit dirty or a little bit filthy with sin. No, we're covered from head to toe. This summer I was at a camp and One of the, I was speaking with some counselors, and one of the games that they had for their junior campers was they had created this massive mud pit in the middle of their field. And I was sitting talking with some counselors, and they were bemoaning the fact that they had to play that game that night because those girl counselors did not like getting dirty, right? And so some of them had come up with a strategy. Some said, you know what? I'm just going to stand beside the mud pit and I'm going to tag the kids coming out of the pit. So they didn't want to get dirty, right? But there were some girl counselors who just jumped right in. And some had a little bit of dirt and filth And others were covered from head to toe. And this is how James describes sin in our lives. It's defiling and it's pervasive. And James tells us that in order to receive God's word and welcome it into our hearts, we must first strip off the filthy, polluted garments of sin. 
Sin should have no quarter in our hearts. We must let the word do its wonderful work of exposing the true nature of our hearts and then cleansing our hearts. So we receive the word by laying aside sin. But then he tells us also, we must receive the word meekly. Receive with meekness the implanted word. As believers, we must recognize that the word of God is an absolute authority. It's not going to come to us with suggestions. No, the word of God comes head on, comes to us with commands. Yes, it does comfort, right? It does rejoice. It does revive. It does woo our hearts, but it also confronts us too, right? It confronts our values and our speech and our choices and our schedule and our giving and our marriages and relationships, what we watch, what we read, what we love. The Word of God is an authority that has dominion over every aspect of our lives. And there are two basic responses to it. We can stiffen our neck and harden our heart. Or we can meekly, humbly, submissively welcome its authority over every aspect of our lives. For the believer's heart, the word is not a guest, nor is it a tenant but rather it's the landlord and owner. The implanted word, as James describes, is an integral part of our spiritual existence. So humbly, submissively receive it. So we've observed that we must carefully listen to the word and thoughtfully respond as it's being spoken. We also must submissively receive it. But finally, this morning, I'd like to look at this concept. We must obey the word completely. We must obey the word completely. James writes in verse 22, look at what it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no forgetful hearer but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here in these verses, James contrasts two individuals. The first one is the hearer only, and the second is the doer of the word. The hearer only is like a person who gazes intently at a mirror. Now, mirrors can be super helpful, and at the same time, super discouraging, right? Depending on the state of your face. 
right? But the job of a mirror is not to make us feel good. It's to reveal us. Now, the hearer only looks intently into this mirror, and he sees that there's a lot of work to do in his life. He's still covered in the filth and pervasiveness of sin. But instead of applying the cleansing soap of the Word of God, he leaves the mirror and immediately forgets the state of his heart. He's interested in the mirror for a time. But then he walks away, and he fails to obey. The doer of the word looks into the mirror that James describes as the perfect law, the law of liberty, which, of course, generally speaking, is going to be the word, right? But instead of leaving and forgetting like the hearer, The doer perseveres. He stays gazing at the mirror and commits to obeying what it says in every area of life. So we learn from these verses that it's not enough to simply be a good listener. It's not enough to just hear the word of God or to just agree with it in our minds. No, a proper response to the word is achieved when we actually obey it. However, all too often, we stop short of obedience. Oh, we like the word. We appreciate the word. Many times our minds have been stimulated by its message and our hearts pricked with conviction. But these responses, though good, are not good enough. The word must have a practical impact on our day-to-day living. Otherwise, we're self-deceived, right? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Brothers and sisters, we are at great risk of deceiving ourselves into thinking we are religious when in reality we're really just disobedient. Can I just pause here and ask you a question that has been humbling me all week long? How many times have you heard the word of God and failed to obey it? Consider for a moment that our access to the word is unprecedented in human history. With a swipe of our fingers, we can read it or listen to it. We've got podcasts and journals and commentaries and radio stations all at the tips of our fingers. 
In addition to that, we've got Sunday morning gatherings. We've got life stage classes, Wednesday evening Bible studies, and other small groups. And exposure to the word like we have is wonderful. But we still must ask, are we being changed by it? Oh, brothers and sisters, may God give us the courage and commitment to persevere in the word of God and obey it practically. And you know what's special about when we do that? The word of God does a wonderful work, right? Remember at the beginning we talked about it? It's the life-giving word. It births us into new life. It's the soul-saving word. It will keep us to the end. And in between these two things, the word is changing us. And when we have this response, the word of God does its wonderful work to change us. Psalm 1 says, it can make us fruitful like the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season and its leaf also does not wither. In Psalm 19, the word has the power to revive us, to purify us, enlighten us, give us joy, and make us wise. It's no wonder that the doers of the word are blessed in their doing. Because the word of God is powerful. And it can change us. It is a priceless gift that should be both treasured and obeyed. So in conclusion... This morning we began by asking the question, how should we properly respond to the word of God? And here's a concise statement trying to boil down everything that we've talked about. We must listen to the word carefully, receive it submissively, and obey it completely. What's the proper response? We must listen carefully. We must receive it submissively. And obey it completely. To do any less would be to deceive ourselves. So let me ask you the question How are you responding to the Word of God? Are you really trying to listen? Or is in your heart an argumentative spirit? Are you receiving it submissively, letting it have its authority over every area of your life? And as the word points out sin and filth and rampant wickedness, you lay it aside and submissively receive it. Or maybe, maybe the problem is you love the word and it's It's been an encouragement to you, and it's done wonderful things in this room, in your heart, but has it changed your life when you've left? Oh, brothers and sisters, may God change us 
by his wonderful, powerful word. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, I'm going to pray, but I'd like for you to thoughtfully consider for a moment our text this morning and ask yourself the question, how are you responding to the word of God? For some of you, before you begin to answer that question, you must first determine whether or not you have been born again. Whether or not you have new life in Christ through the living and abiding word of God. The scripture teaches that new life is imparted to someone when they turn from their sin and humbly receive the truth of the gospel, the word of truth. What is that truth? The gospel tells us that we have rebelled against our holy and righteous creator, but God has made a way for us to have our sins forgiven and to have a relationship with him restored. How God does this through his son Jesus, who came to earth, perfectly obeyed the Father's will, and then willingly died on the cross in our place so that we could be spared God's righteous judgment. So the first question that you need to ask this morning is this, have I received new life? Have I turned from my sin and put my trust in this word of truth, the gospel? Have I asked Jesus to save me and cleanse me and purify me? Am I trusting this word of Jesus? If you haven't, then the first step for you is to receive that gospel today. Because you will never obey it or want to obey it unless God has given you new life. So for some of you, perhaps the first step would be receiving Jesus, who has been called the Word of God. For others of you who are believers, I I want to leave you with hope this morning that a proper response to the word is possible. When we come to a text like this, we, we often think, man, this seems impossible. But can I just remind you that because of Jesus, it is possible. His life, death, and resurrection has given us everything necessary to respond in faith and obedience Through Jesus, we've died to sin, been raised to new life. We have the word, we have the spirit, we have the community of saints. If we fail to obey the word, it is not because God has failed us. We've got everything we need for life and godliness, and it's it's found in the word. So if you're a believer this morning... You need to decide to listen carefully to the word, receive it submissively, and obey it completely. It is possible to be pleasing to God. It is possible to obey. And we are first pleasing to God because Jesus has made the way for us. But it is also possible to obey. Finally, remember that applying Scripture to our lives 
extends beyond this moment. These moments at the end of a gathering are not enough for you to fully consider how the word applies to your life. So I want you to ask yourself the question as you're thinking there in your seat, what does persevering in the word look like for you? How can you keep yourself from even walking out of this room and forgetting what manner of man you were? Perhaps maybe you need to form a habit of quiet reflection on a Sunday. Or perhaps you should join a growth group where you can discuss the application of the word to life with fellow saints who are on the same journey But in the quietness of your seats, I'd like you to consider those questions. Are you a believer? If you're a believer, you can respond positively to the word. It is possible. Jesus has done everything for you, and God has provided everything necessary for you to walk in obedience. So maybe humble yourself and ask for God's grace to obey. And then finally, ask God to help you continue obeying. Application of the word goes beyond the moment we say amen. It's got to flesh out in your life. So how can you thoughtfully persevere in the word when you leave this room? How is it going to flesh out practically in your life? I'll give you a moment to just think and pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you, God, that it's not only sharp, but it also comforts us and revives us and enlightens us. It makes us wise. It gives us life. It preserves our souls. Lord, thank you that you've given to us this precious gift. And Lord, I pray that today we would begin the first step on a journey of being a person who perseveres in your word and is committed to faithfully obeying it. Lord, help us to listen carefully and thoughtfully. Help us, Lord, to receive and welcome your word into our hearts humbly and submissively. And Lord, I pray that finally you'd help us to obey. God, this is just the first step. Let your word do its wonderful work in our hearts as we leave this room. God, change us, grow us, produce your fruit in us, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for you are the gut one who makes things grow. You are the one who makes things bear fruit. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we look expectantly to what you are going to do through your word in your lives in our lives as we properly respond to it.
Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests of God, his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.